Well, I would invite you to join me in standing out of reverence and honor for the Word of God as we pick back up our sermon series in the book of Acts, and our scripture reading for this morning will be Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. And these are the words of the one and only God. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he reached Caesarea. And so ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of the Lord forever. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, Indeed, we are no different than this eunuch apart from the Holy Spirit, that we would be alienated, separated from you, and in your kindness, you have sent your Holy Spirit to open our eyes, to behold this lamb led to the slaughter, whose name is Jesus. And so we pray you do it once again. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, that we might behold your Son, in his glory. In his name we pray, and amen. We may be seated. Well, many, many moons ago, I had the great privilege to study abroad in the town of Oxford, England, which at first glance is, is nothing more than a quaint little town full of English charm, unassuming in a way that conceals its massive significance upon the Western world. But as young, naive Americans, much of that significance just went right over our heads. 
as we would walk through the streets of Oxford and it failed to register that we were walking right where a William Tyndale, a T.S. Eliot, a C.S. Lewis had once walked. Or that right over there, there was one of the greatest uh, libraries in all of Europe, if not all the world. Or that right over there, there was a university, one of the oldest, not simply in England, but in the entire world. And you see, it wasn't until our tour, and by the means of this expert tour guide, who would open our eyes to see the treasures that lay before us. It was this guide who revealed the rich history these precious gems that were right before other, our eyes that we would have walked blindly right past. And in much the same way, that is what we have in our text this morning. As Philip encounters this Ethiopian eunuch who is walking through the greatest of treasures, the greatest pearl, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and nearly passes by it were it not for spirit-wrought guidance from above to open his eyes. And that is our main point to consider this morning, that the gospel advances by God's word through God's spirit. The gospel triumphs by word and spirit. And so we'll walk through this text looking at three simple parts. The good news read, then the good news explained, and then lastly, the good news believed. And so jumping right in, the good news read, we get the where and the who of this story, both of which are quite surprising. Verse 26 tells us, the angel tells Philip, rise, go to the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Now, I don't want to offend any Gazaeans who might be here this morning, but Gaza was a dump. It was not a nice city. Once splendid at this time, it is in disrepair, it's desolate, it's ransacked. It's only real value being that it's a watering hole before comes desert wasteland. And so man in his wisdom would surely reply to the angel, wait, you want me to go from Jerusalem to Gaza? If anything, shouldn't it be the reverse? I need to go from Gaza to Jerusalem. That's where the people are. That's where the action is. Why would I wander in this desert wasteland? But is this not how our great God loves to tell the story? That Israel wanders through a wilderness to get to a promised land. That it is the shepherd boy and his sling who defeats the giant. That it is the tiny, tiny mustard seed that bears great fruit. As one theologian said, God loves to draw straight with crooked lines. He loves to confound all human wisdom so that his wisdom is illuminated. Now, Philip, to his credit, his response is simply trust and obey. As you see in verse 27, and he rose and went. Not all obey when it makes sense. Not all obey when I rationally comprehend it. No, he is a ready vessel. And he sees that his obedience is not in vain when he stumbles upon our second character in verse 27. And let's note two descriptions of him. Firstly, you see he is an Ethiopian, which is to say an African. That would also likely mean he is a Gentile. And to make that clear, an outsider to Judaism or an outcast, to put it even stronger, one who would be considered a stranger to God's covenant. Secondly, you see also in verse 27 that he is a eunuch. 
This was a practice in the ancient Near East. A man would trade his masculinity, and in exchange, he would get a, a moderate amount of prestige in the royal court and some wealth that accompanied it. And you see that in verse 27. He presides over the treasury of the queen of Ethiopia. But according to the law, and by way of his castration, he could not become a true, full proselyte. And so we must fully appreciate that as a Gentile and as a eunuch, he is twice excluded from the worshiping community. It's as Ephesians 2 says, he would be alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, a stranger to the covenants of promise. Here is an outsider. And yet despite those two strikes, you can see that he is not far from the kingdom of God. Verse 27 tells us that he had come to Jerusalem to worship. To borrow a term from the book of Acts, this man is a God-fearer. A man sincerely devoted, intrigued by the things of God, but not yet born again. And maybe that is you here this morning. You are intrigued by Christianity, but could not yet say, Christ is Lord. And you see further evidence of his reverence that on his road trip, instead of sleeping, instead of streaming Netflix, he makes the best use of his time by reading. Verse 28 shows he's reading from Isaiah. And so the Spirit says to Philip, go over and join this chariot. And notice his quick obedience, not walking, but running as he heard him reading out loud. And notice Philip has the wisdom to ask a question that we probably do not ask nearly enough in our evangelistic encounters. Do you understand what you are reading? Do you understand the truth claims of Christianity? Do you understand what we mean when we say God is triune? Christ is the Son of God, fully man, fully God. Do you understand what we mean when we say the Scriptures are inspired and inerrant? Or that salvation is by grace alone, faith alone? Do you understand or should I clarify those things for you? For the Reformed faith teaches that knowledge is a component to saving faith. I cannot trust Jesus Christ if I do not first have a knowledge of Jesus Christ. The gospel message is not one of blind faith. It is believe upon this Savior. And this is why the ministry of the word is so important, isn't it? That the gospel would go forth with a clear exposition of the word. That faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so with the sage said, the word is read. And now things really begin to kick up into a, a higher gear. And so let's look at the word explained. Now the eunuch, to his credit, he displays a rare humility in verse 31. He openly confesses his ignorance, says, no, I, I don't understand. I need a guide. And this word guide would be an everyday word, like, like a man leading a blind man from one destination to another. And the eunuch confesses and says, look, I know enough to know I'm blind and I need help. And so he invites Philip up into his chariot for a Bible study. I was recently examined by our, our Presbytery Missionary Board, and I was asked the question, what is the most difficult kind of person to minister to? The hardest person to minister to. And I thought about it for a while, and I thought, well, probably someone with a different background than me. Maybe someone with different life experiences. Maybe someone with different culture, different socioeconomic status, so on and so forth. But the more I reflected upon it, I became convinced of a far greater difficulty. 
that in fact the most difficult person to minister to is the person who bears no teachable spirit. Prideful, arrogant, puffed up, the very opposite of this eunuch who welcomes Philip and welcomes his instruction. And so ask yourself, is your heart hospitable to the word of God? You know, there's some homes you just walk into, they're, just, they're so hospitable, it smacks you in the face almost. You think, I want to be here, I want to dwell here. And that should be our disposition towards God's word. You should extend the warmest, most hospitable, most submissive invitation to the word of God. And so ask yourself, would the word of God find my heart to be most inviting? Or would my pride, my complacency, drive it out? Well, be encouraged as you see how the humbled are exalted in verses 32 and 33. And you see the eunuch is reading the very heart of the gospel. In God's providence, he is reading one of the most Christ-centered passages in all of the Old Testament. That of Isaiah's suffering servant, but yet still with some confusion. And understand that the eunuch's confusion is understandable. The first century mindset was not expecting a suffering Messiah. A suffering Messiah would be a non-Messiah. The first century is expecting this triumphant Messiah who rides in and with military might, conquers Rome, restores the kingdom to Israel, and refurbishes her glory. And so verse 34, he asks what in many ways is the most important Bible study question of all. A question marking the difference between life or death. Damnation or everlasting salvation? A most simple question. About whom do the scriptures speak? About whom do the scriptures testify? It is a very simple question, and yet what a stumbling block it is. Do you remember Jesus' rebuke to the Pharisees? You search the scriptures because you think that in them is life, and yet you have missed that they testify about me. And in verse 35, Philip does exactly that. That by the word, he points him to Christ. A most interesting Greek verb that could literally be read, Philip gospeled him. He gospeled the eunuch. He guided him through the truth that this Messiah must suffer because he came to save his people from their sins. That this lamb must be slaughtered because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That he was the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, despised and rejected by men, and most of all, crushed by God for our iniquities. And he could turn to that eunuch and say, for your iniquities, if you but come to him in simple faith so that you, O outsider, could come inside God's family. And oh, what a balm to his soul that would have been. Here's a man who could have been voted least likely to be spiritually blessed. An Ethiopian, a eunuch, a stranger, physically, permanently unsuitable for religious worship. No lasting heritage, no sons or daughters, and above all, the exclusion due to his own sin. And Philip gospeled him. And said that this same suffering Savior is a risen Savior. 
triumphant over death. Who can describe his generation? This Christ cannot now die. Death has no dominion over him. And if you join yourself to him, O eunuch, you would live forever. And that is what the eunuch does. In verse 35, notice it tells us Philip began with this scripture, as in this Old Testament scripture to explain the gospel. Remember, at this time, there is probably little to no access to a written New Testament. There is just the Hebrew Bible. And I do hope you have a category for what Philip is doing. That if you were challenged to go and gospel somebody and say, but wait, you can only use Genesis to Malachi, you would be undeterred. You would take courage knowing that the entirety of the Old Testament is but a holy index finger raised up, pointing forward to the coming Christ and fulfilled in him. You see, Philip is simply doing what Jesus did prior on that road to Emmaus when he opened the eyes of those disciples, telling them the Old Testament, all the Old Testament is pointing to and fulfilled in me, the coming Messiah. And so with that, the word read, the word explained, let us now look at the word believed in verse 36. They go along and you see this eunuch responds and he asks, what prevents me from being baptized? And you might notice if you have an ESV, it skips from 36 and goes to verse 38. If you have a King James Bible, for instance, you have a verse 37 with a kind of baptismal liturgy, and the eunuch professes, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And we know well from early church documents that the normal practice, of course, would have been a profession of faith prior to baptism. And so with that, verse 38, Philip baptizes him. One of the things baptism signifies is to walk in a newness of life. As if to say that the eunuch who went down into the water is an entirely different man when he comes up out of the water. That if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. And you see that newness of life explode in verse 39. That even though his new best friend Philip is nowhere to be seen, the eunuch goes on his way rejoicing. Full of the joy of salvation. That having gone from wrath to grace, he can hardly keep it in. He is abounding in joy. I received an email a couple of weeks ago from a friend, and it was the the opening line that caught my eye. Because instead of the usual levity like, hey man, what's up dude? How's it going? This is how it opened. I hope that this email find you regularly experiencing the joy of Christ. I had to pause and ask myself, do I? Am I? And I would ask you the same thing. Are you regularly experiencing the joy of Christ? That if somebody popped by on a Monday morning, on a Wednesday afternoon, and took your spiritual temperature, it would read, joyful Christian. And by that, of course, I do not mean that you've whipped yourself up into some kind of emotional experience. No, I mean the joy of Christ. The joy that he is mine, that I am his, that nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ. The joy that the world can neither give nor take away. 
This is indeed why we are commanded to be regularly rejoicing, isn't it? As Paul says in Philippians, rejoice always. And in case you didn't hear me, again, I say rejoice. Well, our eunuch, again, to his credit, he does exactly that. And he's going to reap even more joy as he keeps reading in his scroll. Because in just a few chapters in Isaiah, Isaiah prophesies this in Isaiah 56. Let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. To be a dry tree is, of course, to be everything a tree shouldn't be. It's to be barren. It's to be unfruitful. It's to be unproductive. Fit probably only to be cut down and thrown into a fire. It is a fitting metaphor for a eunuch. And yet Isaiah prophesied 800 years earlier that the one who joins himself to the Lord will no longer be a dry tree. God says, I will give him better than sons and daughters. I will give him an everlasting name. And we can only speculate, but I don't believe it is an unwarranted guess that this little episode in Acts chapter 8 marks the beginnings of the church in Africa. That this eunuch goes back to Ethiopia carrying the gospel in his heart. And from this one tiny seed of a man whose name we don't even know spreads the gospel to Africa. That I would remind you that church names like Tertullian and Augustine are of Africa. From this man spreads the gospel to Africa. From the time of Augustine all the way to the recent rivals, revivals in Rwanda and Uganda and all over the continent, all perhaps tied back to this singular event on this obscure road with a man whose name we don't even know. We love great awakenings. We love headlines. We love great revivals, right? Thousands to coming to Christ in a single moment, and yes and amen to that. The book of Acts clearly shows us that glory. But notice the book of Acts equally shows us how a tiny seed in this one man is of lasting significance. Do not despise the day of small things. See, what the gospel is doing, what only it can do. The gospel bringing in strangers and aliens, what our world so pitifully and artificially tries to manufacture through its so-called initiatives of diversity and equity and inclusion. See here in the gospel that the gospel alone, there is truly no barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, and we can add to that list, Ethiopian. All are one in Christ Jesus. Do not despise the small beginnings of our great God. Now, as for Philip, you would imagine after that kind of successful evangelism, you do a victory lap, or you put your feet up, you know, you do one of these and rest for a minute. But look at Philip, verse 40. His clothes have not even had time to dry, and he is led by the Spirit to preach the gospel to all the towns until his last stop. We could ask Philip, Philip, why such zeal? Why such enthusiasm? And I imagine him saying, because I have the commission of the one who has all authority 
in heaven and on earth. And he has commissioned me to go and to disciple the nations. That Ethiopia is just the warm-up until the glory of God covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. And friends, the church of Jesus Christ follows exactly in his footsteps. And so as we begin to close this most amazing encounter between Philip and the Ethiopian, let us lay up in our heart but three treasures to ponder. Firstly, the work of the Holy Spirit. Your particular Bible probably has this section of Scripture labeled as Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. But I trust you see it could be easily relabeled as the Holy Spirit and the Ethiopian eunuch. Because if you ask the simple question, well, who is the ultimate guide? Who is the animator? Who is the leader? Who is the one who is opening the the eyes of the blind of this entire event from start to finish? You're left with one answer, and it is not Philip. It is the Holy Spirit through the instrument that is Philip. Notice verse 26. It is the angel who directs Philip to the eunuch. Notice verse 29. It is the spirit who tells Philip to join the chariot. Notice verse 39. It is the spirit who carried Philip away to the next town. And of course, we know from the totality of Scripture, it would be the Spirit and the Spirit alone who would guide the Ethiopian into all truth to open his eyes to see that this lamb is the Son of God. And to put it more strongly, apart from the Spirit, this is nothing more than two blind men talking right past each other in a fruitless, lifeless Bible study. And so what are we to do? How then shall we live? Kids, a great catechism question to think on today. You should teach it to your parents. Is question 59. How can you get the help of the Holy Spirit? How, kids, can you get the help of the Holy Spirit? My guess is, kids, you are great at asking for stuff. Mom, can I have this? Dad, can I have that? Older brother, can I have this? Well, kids, take that skill before God. Because God has told you to come and to ask, to pray for the help of the Holy Spirit. And kids, you should pray it with all your might. Because God is not stingy with his spirit. And adults, of course, we would do well to do the exact same. Secondly, through the work of the Spirit, you see the power of the word. The power of God's word. I remember once I was doing this home construction project with my electric drill, and despite all my effort, despite all my strength, I could not drill the screws into the wood. They would just not go in. They would not sink in. And so I asked around to the handyman that I know, and I got some key advice, which was, Mark, put down that electric drill. What you need is a pneumatic drill. I asked him, why would I use a pneumatic drill? And they explained to me, Well, a pneumatic drill generates far more power than an electric drill because a pneumatic drill is powered by air, powered by wind. It can put more force into it. You may know that word pneuma, as in pneumatic, is the Greek word for wind, or more commonly translated in the New Testament, 
Spirit, the Holy Spirit, because that is how the word goes forth. It goes forth with pneumatic power and does not return void. Indeed, this is no doubt an extraordinary conversion with extraordinary power, but notice it is through the ordinary means of God's word. The word of God is opened. The word of God is explained, and the word of God is believed. That is our confidence. Not do I know enough? Have I been to seminary? I've got so many doubts. What if it doesn't go well? Pneumatic power for the purpose of God's word drilled into, sinking into the impenetrable human heart and welling up to everlasting life. Lastly, Thirdly, with that confidence, we see and are reminded of the goal of the gospel, the trajectory of the gospel. As far back as the poet Homer, Ethiopia was considered at that time as the ends of the earth. And so to read of the gospel going to Ethiopia, it carried the weight of worldwide extension. As Paul says in Colossians, the gospel is bearing fruit and it is increasing in the whole world world. And indeed, that is the trajectory of the gospel. Nothing less than worldwide dominion. This is the forte of the book of Acts, that it shows us just as you throw a pebble into a pond, and from that center point ripples outward water in rings, so too the gospel is dropped into Jerusalem, and now it is rippling outward from Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth until God's glory fills it up by word and spirit. And so, Christian, I would ask you, how big is your gospel? How far does your gospel go? How wide does your gospel reach? And know that if it's anything less than to every tribe, to every tongue, to every nation, it is far, far too small. If it's anything less than the glory of God filling up the earth as the waters cover the sea, then it is far, far too small. For the Lord Jesus Christ is the lamb led to the slaughter. He has died. He has risen. He has ascended to the Father's right hand. And from there, he is drawing all his elect to himself from the four corners of the world. And he will do so by his all-sufficient word, and through his all-powerful Holy Spirit, and all for the imperial majesty of our great God. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we pray indeed that the cry of our heart, just as your servant once said, would be not by might, not by our strength, but by thy Spirit. For your beloved son has indeed accomplished all the work that you have given him to do. That he has received the oil of gladness beyond his companions. And he has poured forth his spirit. That the church might do the work that you have given us to do. To disciple the nations. Teaching them to observe all that you have commanded. Father, we know that if you do not go with us. Our striving, our labors are but in vain. But we know your goodness and the goodness of your promises. 
that you would go with us, that you might make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is in his strong name we pray. Amen. Well, as